Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about light and shadow. After all, March 20th is World Storytelling Day. first time I heard The Offspring, I thought to myself, what a bunch of punks. And I meant that in a really good way. See, since about 1986, I had decided that I was pretty much done with punk music, that the movement itself seemed dead to me. And part of the reason I felt that way was summed up well by the Dead Kennedys. On their Bedtime for Democracy CD, their last full-length release, they had a line in a song that said this, Punk's not dead, it just deserves to die when it becomes another stale cartoon. They weren't just writing the epitaph for their own band after some of the legal challenges that they had faced had really worn them down. They also were speaking about the entire punk movement. With other brilliant, brilliant lines, criticizing the state of the music industry as it was, Things like, a hairstyle's not a lifestyle, imagine Sid Vicious at age 35. Right on target. Well, about a decade later, a little bit less in fact, The Offspring captured some of the spirit that was true of punk music in the 80s and brought it back with a bit of a metal edge. I think a lot of stores probably put The Offspring's albums either in rock or alternative, uh, most likely not in heavy metal. But they certainly brought the guitar and... uh a lot of noise to go with it, but with short, sweet songs, with a lot of sarcasm, I think they really had a lot of punk in there as well. The song that I played for you is from their major label debut, Smash. Actually, it's only a major label debut in the sense that the album that had already been recorded for Epitaph Records simply moved over with them in their contract with Columbia Sony. Now, I'm no expert on The Offspring. I missed the first couple of their albums. Uh, I joined when I found out about it from the major label switch. So as much as I prefer a do-it-yourself approach, and I'm not necessarily a big fan of huge media conglomerates, I might not have noticed the offspring for even longer had they remained on such a, a small, a relatively small record label to start. Truth is, I've lost track of them lately as well. They've put out at least two or three albums since the last one that I heard and picked up. To talk a little bit about the album Smash, though, just to give you a sense of what the band is like, it still, of course, has that um, that independent spirit to it, because the album was produced on an independent label. And the song that I played for you, uh, the song really that makes me recommend that first CD, is called Come Out and Play, with a uh, parenthetical, Keep Them Separated. Now, just to jump forward several months down the line, I'm not done with The Offspring yet. Whatever I say during this brief introduction, um, I may hit them again later, because frankly, Smash is not my favorite album by The Offspring. I much prefer Ixnay on the Ombre, but I've got really personal reasons for that, 
I'll talk about some of those reasons uh, in a couple of weeks, maybe, but really, I'm going to wait until the very end of the year to come back to The Offspring. Is the story behind the song, Come Out and Play, ironic? You know, the come out and play part seems to be calling for a fight. It's like one gang member is talking to another gang member and saying, you know, maybe back in the early 60s or the late 50s, they would have used a term like rumble or something like that. And yet the keep them separated line of dialogue seems to be coming from a like an authority perspective, like a parental perspective, and it seems to be trying to, to have a timeout, put the two in their corner, kind of avoid conflict. And it's really that avoidance that's bothering me. When I talk about light and shadow, I want to talk a little bit about what it means for us to marginalize some things and to prevent us from what I would call bringing things out into the light. See, the avoidance idea is about keeping everything in the shadows. It is segregation. It's quite literally segregation. Now, I don't want to make light about the context of come out and play, and I don't want to suggest that violent clashes are in any way a good thing, but I also don't take this tone of the song seriously. I don't think that the offspring, or at least the narrator speaking the lyrics of the song, the character doing the talking, is suggesting that it's a good thing to keep things separated. See, gangs don't find peace by drawing boundaries. Whether those boundaries come kind of organically by the way rival gangs interact with each other, or whether those boundaries are imposed by some you know authoritative force, could be anything from a city zoning commission to the way the police patrol the streets, the boundary itself can be a problem because ultimately all you get by having a line there where this is the end of my turf and the beginning of your turf is the location of violence. Think about that for a second. These borders that we create between ourselves, whether it be you know, inner city gang warfare or whether it be the political issues that we just scream about and we don't really talk about. At the end of the day, the problem in my mind is that we stand on either side of these borders. These borders create a place where we clash with each other. They set a time and a place for the rumble. Why do I think the song is sarcastic? Well, a couple of reasons. I'm assuming it's punk. So in my mind, I read it the same way I read the Dead Kennedys' very first song from their very first full-length studio album, Kill the Poor. I don't read that as the band suggesting that it's a really good idea for us to round up and kill all the poor people. The band is speaking sarcastically about a government, perhaps several world governments, who've become so good at ignoring the needs of the underprivileged, of intentionally drawing economic lines and marginalizing members of society, that you might as well round them up and kill them. In fact, in that song, Dead Kennedys even suggests that um, some of the leading liberals of the time People like Jerry Brown and Jane Fonda might not have a problem with it. So here you are again with this one. Yes, they're saying come out and play on the one hand, keep them separated on the other. But if you listen to some of the verses, one refers to the idea that by the time you hear the sirens, it's already too late. We have one guy dead, one guy going to jail, or as they worded, one guy's wasted and the other's a waste. To take this a little bit beyond the offspring, and this concept that I really think speaks for a lot of what I'm trying to do on this show, this idea that keeping separated is bad, and we ought, to, we ought to come out and play. We ought to be willing to play and play nicely with each other. 
I'm going to bring it back to this concept of light and shadow and kind of explain the introduction a little better. March 20th is World Storytelling Day. I did not know that until very recently. This isn't a holiday with a long, you know, hundreds of years of history to it. Really, it goes only back to maybe 1992 from the perspective of Scandinavia, or 1997, give or take, from the larger world stage. But I'm really interested in the idea behind having a day like that where the art of storytelling is encouraged, where people are um, led to say, hey, this is a good time to gather together as people and exercise the very ancient and meaningful art of storytelling. This year, the theme, which I guess comes from some national organizing body, is light and shadow. Next year, it's going to be water, if I'm understanding correctly. Water would be an excellent topic for a Christian organization to exercise on a World Storytelling Day event next March 20th, because water has such a powerful meaning in Judaism and Christianity, from images of flood to images of baptism, and even beyond just that. So let me quote a little bit of scripture here and take this topic to a broader perspective than simply the gang violence that I started with. I'm going to quote one of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, which says, It is written, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. What Paul is saying here is that there is, in Judaism, a long history of the word being handed down. Through primarily oral tradition, Jews were handed down stories that eventually became part of what we describe today as the Old Testament. And Paul is bringing that legacy of storytelling forward into the New Testament and saying, we have come into your communities of faith, preaching a gospel, a good news message, and we're doing it because we believe. We're not speaking because there's any angle in it for us. We're not seeking prosperity. How I wish that were true of the Christians that you see public speaking most of the time today. But instead, it's coming simply from speaking from a matter of truth. So let me deliver a truth that some Christians may find to be a hard truth, because I think, well, I'll get to the reasons why in just a second. It's one thing to talk about what we would call very plain and ordinary violence, physical violence, uh, gang shootings, things of that nature. But I want to talk about a less overt form of violence. When large parts of our society engage in what, what you might call quiet violence, quiet violence is the denial of one another's right to exist. When we engage in this kind of violence, it stops all of us from becoming the people that we were meant to be. This is not my concept. I really wish I could give proper credit here, but I don't remember the name of the speaker that I first heard this from. It wasn't that many years ago. She was a speaker at a theological school, and I was able to receive some recordings. And the reason that these recordings were passed on to me was because of the um, speaker's use of film. I'm a big fan of film. She described different forms of violence in our society by looking closely and in some detail into three movies. A History of Violence, the David Cronenberg film starring Viggo Mortensen. She used this as an example of what we might call very ordinary violence, definite, physical, fatal violence. Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, 
which she used as an example of gender-based violence and the kind of violence that leads people to exclude entire members of society, either due to an ageism or a sexism of some sort. And, you know, the notion that a traditional way of looking at things can sometimes really be a very squelching and a very negative influence on the members of society who are not deemed to be part of the elect, for want of a better word. She used Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon to make that analogy. And the third film that she picked was another Ang Lee film. This one was Brokeback Mountain. So far, I have not seen Brokeback Mountain. I know, um, on simplysyndicated.com, the Movies You Should See program has called that film out as a movie that, well, frankly, a movie I should see. At some point, I'll get around to it. It hasn't happened yet. But the plot summaries that I've heard, both on programs like Movies You Should See, which I heartily recommend, and also from this speaker to this seminary school, leave very little question about what the storyline's about. And from the perspective of violence, it's not hard to see kind of where I'm heading with this. She made the argument that forcing two people who feel that they belong together apart from one another due to a societal constraint or a fear of the threat of violence is, in fact, an act of violence. In fact, I'd say that of the examples that she used, it may be the best example of quiet violence. I would say that the traditional, old-style culture holding a young woman with the skills to be a samurai back is more of um, an assumed violence. But Brokeback Mountain, at least by all descriptions I've heard, does a pretty good job of describing a quiet violence. Leaving people cast in shadow is just as violent. It may not be physically violent, as described in Offspring's song, Come Out and Play, but it also may be a factor in what leads to physical violence. You know, gay bashing is a term with the word bash in it because of what can happen if, you know, an otherwise somewhat silent prejudice manifests itself in a physical way, or if people ignore the danger, and, and you know, in the case of Matthew Shepard, perhaps maybe the most famous case, of gay bashing, and at least in my in my lifetime, a fatal tragedy. What does the Bible say about it? Well, that seems to me to be a good place to, to veer here, because I intend to direct a lot of this message toward what I would consider to be a Christian audience, because the passage I'm going to read is John 3, verses 19 through 21, and that passage says that to love truth is to willingly come into the light. Anything less is intentionally sinful. Now, because I'm talking about sin, I want to start with a focus on areas where the Christians commit the bigger sins. Because, really, that's a whole lot of people who say they know something about sin and salvation to begin with. That's a whole lot of people who ought to know something about the meaning of light in this context. So here's John, chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. That from the Gospel according to John. If I were actively participating in World Storytelling Day, I might pick up with exactly that passage in John's Gospel, and tell a story 
about what it might be like to come to the end of a life and face that moment of judgment that so many people I encounter seem to fear that the church worldwide has tried to play a um, Helen Brimstone kind of card on people to such an extent that most people feel that what happens when you die is either, well, nothing, because they flatly reject any concept of afterlife, or that what happens is some sort of a severe parental um, angry school teacher grading your paper with a big red pen kind of scenario. And again, if I were to tell the story, I, would, I think I'd pick up there and relate a different view and use storytelling skills to describe that that judgment seat concept as instead of being, you know, again, a harsh grade, being more like an episode of This Is Your Life, where all those things that you've done are kind of shown on a big movie screen, not just for you to see, but for a whole host of people to see. And I think John's gospel speaks to exactly that issue by saying, hey, how many of us would really want to watch that movie with a lot of our old friends and with more than just a few strangers? There's got to be parts of that movie that you'd prefer not to see. And that's really what John is describing when he talks about not wanting your deeds to be exposed. When he talks about the idea of preferring to stay in darkness than to come out into the light. But you know what? I'm not going to tell that story. Because I don't want to use the time to do a world storytelling day and to venture into the kind of you know witness or message that I might give if I was in a church. So I just want to kind of use that to set a baseline and say, hey, I am very capable of, of telling a parable. And I firmly believe that the concept in World Storytelling Day works perfectly for somebody who actually wants to share a message of faith, because Jesus, in many, many passages recorded in the New Testament, spends a lot of time telling stories himself. Now, we use a word like parable to describe those stories, but it's still a matter of Jesus being presented as a storyteller. Now, what I want to do instead is take this idea about the light and what it means to have shadow and turn that around and say, hey, my fellow Christians, let's identify some people that Christians believe are living in darkness. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of anyone, including myself, sitting in a spot where I presume to say, hey, you're in darkness. I'm in light. You're out. I'm in. But you know, I've heard that. I've heard that even in the church that I attend, that, that there are some people who really have this idea that, you know what, something as simple as being pro-choice or insufficiently pro-life might be perceived by some as an example of you being in darkness, that you don't have the light of Christ shining on you. You are not living in truth because you disagree with me about how to handle a political issue that is so complex and so contentious that the most brilliant political minds of our day don't have any idea what to do about it. Are those people really people who want to kill children? That's the basic assumption. If we were to point to somebody and say, well, you know, this person's pro-choice, does that translate into the minds of some pro-life people and the idea that that's a person because of their insufficient commitment to a pro-life political perspective, what they really want to do is kill children? And then if for whatever reason, if no woman ever went to seek an abortion on a particular day, and let's be honest, it's an everyday thing in America today. But if there was a day when no one did, 
you know, do you really think that the pro-choice movement would implode upon itself because it simply cannot abide by the idea that no children are being killed? These are the assumptions we make. And these assumptions, most of which are false, are an act of casting people into shadow. It's yelling across that gang border where, you know, this street light and that street intersect and this is my turf and that's your turf. And it's saying, you know what, I'm going to refuse to come together and dialogue with you. I would rather wave a sign and yell a slogan across the way. Contrast this with what it means to be in light instead of shadow. Living in the light is all about bringing people together, being charitable about each other's perspectives, and pushing ourselves for even the smallest of the win-win opportunities. Can we come together as a people and agree that, you know what, maybe it's enough to say that we all think that the idea of having to get an abortion is not a good thing, that it's, it's not ideal. It reflects the end of a course that someone's life has taken, that that person and everyone who knows her would say, hey, I'd be better off if I wasn't in this course. Any little win-win makes a big difference. That's a huge contrast from someone who might have his own religious broadcasting radio show or might make a guest appearance on, on a Christian television program or worse, the ones that they seem to find to represent Christianity on TV talk shows. That's a far cry from somebody saying that because this person has a different political view than me, you can't possibly be a Christian. You can't possibly be a believer. And that's kind of the, the area where I struggle. To refer back for a moment to what the offspring say, it's that concept of one guy being wasted and the other being a waste, that um, if you succeed in killing the other person's perspective, if you have a lethal and deadly argument, that you really haven't solved anything. All you've done is completely shut down the dialogue. So when I'm talking about the term come out and play, I'm not saying bring your knives, bring your guns, let's, let's have a battle royale. And I certainly don't ascribe in this context to the ideas like if you're not cheating, you're not trying, and all's fair in love and war. I frankly think that someone who engages in an argument that is so disingenuous and dishonest that it's actually an insult to logic, much less an insult to the person that they're speaking to, that those kind of arguments frankly should disqualify people from the conversation altogether. My fear is, would we have enough intelligent people left? to carry on the conversation? Or would we be left in a situation where all of us are stuck in shadow because with the last available bullet in the gun, the extreme wings of both sides of some of these arguments would shoot out the lights? Starbase 66, the international Star Trek and science fiction podcast. Join our collective at www.simplysyndicated.com or via iTunes, keyword Starbase 66. From this time forward, you will listen to us. I mentioned last time that we would begin a pattern this week with different drummer. The very first different drummer that I want to introduce to you is Gordon Gano. His band, The Violent Femmes, has always crossed the lines between personal faith, political philosophy, and just fooling around. I could easily cite the entire band, The Violent Femmes, 
Uh, don't mean any slight here to Victor DiLorenzo or Brian Ritchie or anyone else. In fact, I personally think that Brian Ritchie's musical talent has a lot to do with why I like the band. When I listen to music, one of the things I'm kind of drawn to, it's not even intentional. One of the things I'm kind of drawn to is, is what's the bass player doing? And in the case of the Violent Femme, Brian Ritchie's work is consistently interesting. And not only does he bring a variety of different bass clef instruments to the music, he's often called upon to provide solo interludes from bass guitar. And he also performs some of the other percussion instruments. His marimba solo on I Know It's True But I'm Sorry to Say is one of the reasons that was actually my favorite song of the entire decade of the 1980s. To talk a little bit about what I mean by the violent femmes crossing the line, and to explain further why I'm singling out Gordon Gano instead of the rest of the members of the band, is simply that he tends to be the primary songwriting credit. He does most of the work, in other words. And, starting with their second album, Hallowed Ground, an album that he contributed all the songs to as the primary songwriter, he really did an outstanding job of mixing not only politics, sex, and religion, but musical styles as well. Now, he had a lot of help on the performing side. I've already praised Brian Ritchie. They included some backup performers on musical instruments like banjo and auto harp, and a group called the Horns of Dilemma, providing some very shrill and unusual jazz backing. Uh, a group that actually, in kind of an anonymous turn, a cameo, if you will, included John Zorn on alto sax. So let me just wander you through my favorite Violent Femmes recording and give you a sense both of why I like the band, why I esteem Gordon Gano so much, and why I think that they represent this show pretty well in terms of the way they mix the topics together. The first track on Hell and Ground is called Country Death Song. And just to jump a little bit ahead, this is an album that features country song, around. By round, I mean row, row, row your boat, around. What I'm going to call art rock, New Testament gospel, Old Testament gospel, straight up rock and roll, a ballad, a blues number, and what could perhaps best be described as jazz from hell. So, musically, the variety is unbelievable. I think the actual purpose of the album, Hallowed Ground, is to step on as many of those hallowed genres as possible. But the lyrics bring the humor and the thought into it. Country Death Song is exactly what the name describes. Set to a very straightforward country beat, could easily be a Johnny Cash number, you know, instrumentally. He tells the story of a economically disadvantaged person from the sticks. So rather than your urban blight, your, your urban poverty, he tells somebody who uh, is so poor that he can't do anything but sit around and think. But he loses his mind, and he kills his daughter. Now, none of that is humorous. It's got that element of Greek tragedy to it, to a certain degree. Because at the end, you know, he ends up executing a, just, a justice against himself. But the line that always gets me in Country Death Song is this. I threw my child into a bottomless pit. She was screaming as she fell, but I never heard her hit. It's that sort of off-kilter, inappropriately funny sort of approach to songwriting that really make, well, made the Violent Femmes famous for a while there. I Hear the Rain is an apocalyptic vision, but again, he has three different verses, not in exactly the same song style either, and at the end it turns into one big row, row, row your boat as the three different musical methods kind of come together 
in a very short and quick song. Never Tell, the third track, I describe as their version of art rock. Um, it's got the kind of long structure, seven minutes plus, kind of an overbloated musical approach with a lot of theatricality. They could have been done by certain generations of King Crimson, and no doubt better. But it also could just as easily be an Emerson, Lake and Palmer piss take, as far as it goes. Jesus Walking on the Water is the next one. So, we haven't hit a whole lot of overt politics here, but now we've hit overt religion. Because the chorus is, Jesus walking on the water, Jesus walking in the sky. I was sinking in sand, he took my hand, and he raised me up high. I know it's true, but I'm sorry to say, is my favorite Violent Femme song. It's ballad, it's uh, borders on sappy, but it's very heartfelt and genuine, and both the bass work and the marimba solo uh, are just magic. Hallowed Ground, which back when I had this on vinyl, was the first song on side two, so you're at the halfway point of the album, starts off with a scripture, quote, from Hosea. The prophet is a fool, the spiritual man is mad, from the multitude of thine iniquity and the great hatred. And then it begins to tell what may be the most overtly political song, directly political song on the album, in terms of you know us being bent toward our own self-destruction. Sweet Misery Blues is the only song on Hallowed Ground that has any sort of lyrical resemblance to the first album. You know, the first album with songs like Add It Up and Blister in the Sun really spend a lot of time dwelling on boy wanting to get with girl and feeling frustrated that it's not happening. And Sweet Misery Blues has exactly that tone to it. In addition to being a pretty cool piece of slide blues, the lyrics have lines like, I want to corner you in an elevator, and then you won't be able to put me off till later. I am not even going to deal with the lyrics of Black Girl. Uh, it's positive. It's a very, uh, it's a very energetic jazz number that, that likes Black Girls a lot. Um, perhaps, you know, again, maybe the next song that's close to the first album in terms of having sort of an overt sexual obsession to it. And the album finishes off with It's Gonna Rain. So there's a couple of songs, Sweet Misery Blues and Black Girls, which have a sexual focus. The political focus is pretty subtle. The title track, Hallowed Ground, being perhaps the most overtly political. And there's a couple of religious songs. I describe It's Gonna Rain as Old Testament gospel. Might be better just to describe it as old-time gospel. Because what I mean by the old-time part is not just that it's dealing with a chapter in the book of Genesis, it's got, it's got this uh, this Noah story going on. Who do you think I am? Well, I built this ark with Japheth, Shem, and Ham. And what do you think it's going to do if I live by faith and now my work is through? More is that the chorus has that call-and-response approach that you really hear in a lot of what I describe as old-time gospel. Uh, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. The thing that I find fascinating about what the Violent Femmes do with this particular plot line is that they ask some questions and they do it in such a subtle way that you could you could bring this song into any church in America and no one would think that you were raising a challenging and difficult issue. And maybe maybe the issue isn't all that controversial. At some point during the It's Gonna Rain chorus, Gordon Gano raises this thought, speaking on behalf of Noah. He says, I'm so happy to say it's going to rain. Bill Cosby raised a similar thought with his uh, Noah stand-up comedy series from the 1960s, 
where he sort of deals with the idea that Noah was probably taking a lot of flack from his family, even more so from his neighbors, and was probably somewhat relieved when, as the story tells it, the prophecy came true and it began to rain. And in this telling, the violent femmes do the same thing. What would it mean to uh, Noah to be happy that it was going to rain? Well, part of it is the way Bill Cosby describes it. It's that that idea that um, you've really stepped out, you've made a risky, suspect proclamation, and there's a bit of vindication to the prophecy coming true. But there's more to it in the way that Gordon Gano sings the words, that He's, he's raising some questions there that I think are really quite interesting. Although the Violent Femmes are no longer together in terms of being an active band performing today, Gordon Gano is still contributing in meaningful ways. His latest work on Yep Rock Records is um, with his group, Gordon Gano and the Ryans. And I have got a copy of the first song off of it, Man in the Sand, and it's quite good. Uh, to me, it's consistent with the things that the Violent Femmes were doing, perhaps in between the blind leading the naked and three. So right there in kind of the middle part of the career of the Violent Femmes. If you haven't listened to Violent Femmes before because you had a sense that they were just a little too alterno-folky for you, either because you don't like folk-style music or you don't like alternative music, or even if you've avoided them so far because of concerns over the parental warning sticker that they tend to get, there's a great deal of rewards in the Violent Femmes lyrically might even be worth the idea of just chasing down some of the lyrics online. Speaking from a Christian perspective, I always find it to be incredibly encouraging when a band that has what you might call street credibility, because they've written honest songs about matters that are in inherently sexual or perhaps political, also feels very open about including religious songs. I've got friends at church in the past, many, many years ago, maybe even back in the 80s, who would have suggested to me that that you can't trust the songs that the Violent Femmes sing that are religious because, you know, they may be poking fun at religion. They may be taking, you know, kind of a sarcastic approach. Well, first, I don't believe that's true. Gordon Gano is the son of a, of a Southern Baptist minister, and I believe he does have a genuine faith to express. But even if you do come away with a sense that you're uncomfortable with the tone, that this is the same musical style that's being used to present other songs like Blister in the Sun. I think any time you can bring a contemporary musical approach to a very traditional Christian message, that's a winner. And it's hard to find a Violent Femmes album after the first one that doesn't have some sort of statement of faith in it. The album right after Hallowed Ground has a song called Faith. And then the one after that, the album three, Dating Days, includes the entire story of Jesus driving the demons out of a man called Legion and sending him out to the fold to uh, start preaching. His devil days were over and done, according to Gordon Gano. Thank you for listening to this inappropriate conversation about light and shadow, world storytelling day, the offspring song come out and play, and Gordon Gano. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, the website is inappropriateconversation.podbean.com, and there's comments enabled there and some show blurbs. I also can be reached by email at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.
Hello, I'm Greg, host of a podcast called Inappropriate Conversations. The show is breaking down barriers about discussing politics, sex, and religion. Here's what I mean. Have you seen the picture of one of those Tea Party protests with someone carrying an I am a teabagger for Jesus sign? I am a teabagger for Jesus. Does anyone think a person this clueless is pointing us in the right direction? I'm not judging. The Bible doesn't say anything against teabagging short of putting such behavior in a monogamous relationship. I go a step further than scriptures, though. Call your shot. That's all I'm saying. As with billiards, it's really bad form if you don't call your shot first. Yeah. You'll find inappropriate conversations on iTunes, in the politics section, or at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening. Music by Kevin McLeod.